Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the jubilant Jen Adcock, the daring Daniel Marquardt, and the brassy Bob Quack. Today we have me, Ange, along with JT and Tomas, and we are going to talk about world building, particularly the little things that give our games settings, flavors, and depth. Before we dive into that main topic, though, let's ask our Get to Know a Gnome question, which today is, what is a cool or unique detail about a homemade setting that you've either built or played in? JT, I'm going to start with you. All right. So I, I think I've mentioned this before, but if I did, it was probably our previous world building episode, which was by my count, 139 episodes ago. So I'm going <laughs> to repeat myself. I'm going to risk it. There's a world called Soleus that my buddy Bill created. On Soleus, there was this awesome road, which you're thinking, what, a road, really? But it was called the Black Road, and it was a perfectly straight line road that ran for hundreds and hundreds of miles. It ran across nations, almost across an entire continent. And what made it really neat is he described it like it was asphalt, but he never actually used the word asphalt. So uh, that was pretty cool. And it made it feel like it was like old world, pre-quote-unquote modern times technology or artifact type thing. An interesting bit is if you put meat on it, it turned it into jerky within a few minutes. Oh. <laughs> and once we discovered that, we never slept on the road. We'd always sleep on the side of the road. Great idea. To this day, I have no clue what happened if you slept on the road. I don't know if it just desiccated you and killed you or what. I have no idea. <laughs> but you could travel on it for days on end at about you know one and a half times your normal speed without getting tired. So that was like a magical effect of the road. Just the, the deal was when you were tired and you needed to get off the road to rest or camp, you got off the road just in case because you didn't want to get turned into elf jerky. <laughs> <laughs> that makes total sense. Yeah. You need to test it out, though. Yeah. What about you, Tomas? Something that I'm coming up with right now, because I am creating a world for a, a whole setting uh, for my players to play in Pathfinder. And I will be trying it out this weekend. Ooh, Ooh. awesome. Nice. Yeah. Something that I came up with last week was a whole new, it's in the race, it's a lineage, I think, or an ancestry. I can't remember the name. I have. I don't have enough experience with Pathfinder 2 to say what they do, because I know some games have both the lineage and the ancestry, but... Yeah, they, they are ancestries and they have heritage. Okay, so it's an ancestry about uh, something that I call an incorporate, which is a small alien thing about 25 centimeters tall that can go inside of corpses and control them like puppets. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's a playable race. Well, ancestry. I did come up with a whole small language for them because I was just uh, enjoying it too much. <laughs> and I came with all the linguistics. I did a whole amount of uh, Google searches about how languages work and how I could make it fit in a way that made sense. And I don't know, it took some time. I absolutely loved it. And if one of my players decide to use one of those words every so often, I think that is going to make it feel like very much part of the, that world. That's very cool. Very cool, yeah. How about you, Ange? What, what, what do you have for a world detail? Yeah. I think I've talked about this before, 
But in my my buddy Tristan's uh, homebrew setting of Silua, um, in their previous campaign, we're currently doing a fifth edition campaign, but in the previous fourth edition campaign, I said I wanted to play a changeling rogue. He was like, yeah, sure, no problem. But he hadn't really thought about what place changelings would have in his world. So he had to think about it for a little bit. And he decided, you know, with talking with me, that he would lean into the whole fey aspect of it and the concept behind where the term changeling came from. And the idea is a baby has been replaced by a fey. The child grows up and, like, is different than what is expected. And in his world, he created this mythology around a changeling baby. A changeling baby appears in your house. It is either a sign of true blessing for being a good human being or a curse for being a horrible human being, but you never know which it is. And so many families automatically assume they don't want the baby around because it's obviously going to be a curse rather than being proudful enough to think that, oh, I must be perfect, so this child is is here to help me. Uh, and so it basically helped me create this whole background for this character about how she grew up as an orphan because she was cast out by the family she was born into. It helped build the foundation for who that character was and where that campaign went with her. I love how fake it seems. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like, that character has a fantastic history because we played through the campaign and then the campaign ended and now she is she is an NPC in the current campaign where she's basically the um, the master of spies for the kingdom. Oh, nice. Uh, and she goes, she's known as the faceless lady mm-hmm. because she's a changeling and can look like anybody. Mm, that's great. So moving into our main topic of discussion... World building is an essential skill for GMs, especially when they start modifying existing settings or start creating their own settings from scratch. So we thought it would be a fun topic to dig into um, about adding the smaller details that bring flavor to the setting that we basically create for our players and with our players. So first things first, how much experience do you have with world building from scratch? Tomas, I'm going to start with you. I can say that I have a bit of experience because as I started with the whole role-playing thing, uh, the first thing that I did was start with 5e and create a whole campaign from scratch because I'm that crazy. And <laughs> I, I grabbed the Forgotten Realms in a way, so the whole uh, races, uh, how most of the gods work and everything. And I used most of that, but created my own stuff as well. I believe that's what most people do. And it's a a good way to start. Uh, If you can use a pre-made setting when you're starting GMing, that might be a better idea. But I had a ton of stuff creating my own towns, cities, NPCs, and pretty much anything. Uh, Well, right now I'm also creating my whole world, but this time it's from scratch. I'm I'm taking no other god from anywhere else. (laughs) I am building a lot of stuff. In fact, I'm deciding to stream it at the moment and I might stream that whole process soon. That's awesome. I think it's important to say right up front that world building is not exclusive to creating something from scratch. World building is something you do 
with a pre-existing setting that you're bringing to your players because you are going yeah. to add aspects yeah. to that setting specific for your game. I absolutely agree. Whether it's NPCs or plot elements or whatever, you are still doing world building in there. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally agree. What about you, JT? Too much? Too many? I don't know. I, I've, <laughs> I've been doing this 40 years now, so I, I'd like to call them settings as opposed to worlds because world implies like the whole globe and 19 continents and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> but settings, I've probably created 20 just for fantasy. I've created others for like Cyberpunk 2020, uh, various sci-fi games, space opera type stuff, all that. So just sticking with the fantasy theme for now, I've probably made about 20 different settings of sizable scope and size. The most extensive one I've created is Lorimore. I use Campaign Cartographer to create six continents. Well, actually, I use Fractal Terrains first to generate the continents and then sucked them into campaign cartographer, sliced and diced and chopped them up into their own map files because I didn't make want to make the mistake of having every tree on every land and every <laughs> continent try to render in one file. Uh, I've made that mistake. Don't do it. I only have one of the six continents of lore more detailed. And when I say detailed, I'm talking every city, settlement, location of interest, business, guild, everything's named. Every business in every city is named and ranked in quality. Jeez. Oh, wow. Full admission, though, I'm a software engineer, so I kind of cheated. I wrote a city generator, and we'll throw the link to that in the show notes. It's on my RPG tools thing that I made to put online. But I took my city generator output and wrapped it in a script and jammed that into my wiki. My wiki has about 9,000 pages in it. I was going to say, <laughs> if you hadn't created a tool to help you do that, that would be about 40 years worth oh, yeah. of time in this hobby. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, no, and no gameplay. That would have just been 40 years of just creating a world. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but no, my wiki is about 9,000 pages. That's not publicly accessible because people try to do nefarious things to it. So I shut that down. That makes sense. I still have access to it and I can grant it to my players and things of that nature. But mm-hmm. yeah, a, a lot of experience. How about you, Ange? Where, where do you sit on the experience scale of creating things from scratch? When it comes to fantasy, I've mostly used pre-existing settings. Honestly, I've mostly stuck in Eberron, but I have definitely tweaked things about the setting to work for my games. That includes creating NPCs, creating places. In my previous campaign, Veterans of the Gauntlet, they had to beat somebody who had stolen the maps to a place. And that place was a monastery in the mountains above the city of Black Pit. I created this from scratch. This was not in any of the materials I found, but it was a monastery where the last, uh, the last goblin king was killed in the demon war they fought. Oh. And so I you know, had to create all of that. I have done a little bit more world building in some science fiction settings. I did an Uncharted Worlds campaign with my players a couple of years ago where we basically sat down and went through, you know, like I had some general ideas of what I wanted to do, but I wanted their feedback to kind of round out the world. So we sat down and did how does space travel work? What type of um, are there just humans or are there alien species out here? Is there an ancient civilization that you find relics from? What type of galactic problems do we have? It's another reason why I struggle with the idea of, quote unquote, world building, because it's really hard to say world building 
when you're talking about a galaxy. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of worlds out there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on, what do you feel is the line between the big important details that you need at the very beginning and the small ones that will help make a setting seem unique and interesting to your players? JT, we'll start with you. All right. So, So your big details, like, say, the location of cities, that is very... Well, it's fantasy, so it could change, but it feels immutable to the players, meaning they can't just pick up and move this city to another location. Sure, high enough level, big enough magic, totally possible, but (laughs) for the most part, moving a city is just out of bounds. So that's a big detail. The R-Deep Forest is just outside Waterdeep. You could probably decimate the forest, slash and burn it, whatever, eliminate it. Uh, The elves wouldn't be happy with you. But things on a map feel immutable to players. And those are your big details. What you really want are the little details, and that's where the world shines. They don't just go to a tavern or spend the night in inn. You want, you know, the Idle Hands Tavern or the House of the Prosperous Monkey is a inn or whatever. I'm just making up names here. Actually, I'm using names out of my novels. But uh, <laughs> that, that's where the world shines is those little details why do they call this the House of the Prosperous Monkey? That, that, that's just such an oddball, weird name. There's got to be a backstory to that. And that might hook your players in a little deeper into wanting to participate in the world. James Sutter of Pathfinder and Starfinder fame loves to drop in minor details with gaps. How he defines a gap is you meet a monk that is the order of the flying mantis from the red cliffs of whatever nation, right? You go flipping through the books, and you're like, well, there's no red cliffs of blah, blah, blah anywhere in the books. And they do that on purpose. That is the game master and the player's opportunity to fill in those gaps to get them to be more involved in the world. So I like leaving those gaps when I'm doing some world building so that my players can participate in filling in that information. It's a fantastic idea. What about you, Tomas? What are are some of your, the, the big things that you have to have established Versus the little things that give it kind of that sparkle. Uh, well, uh, in my case, uh, the two things they mostly do when trying to create on a bigger scope and a smaller scope is, for example, if you're creating a world, you need to know where the, the cities might be located. And that might be based on our real world knowledge. For example, cities might be near a lake or a river or the sea because they need water. To survive, yep. or they might a town might be in the middle of the road between two cities because there needs to be a place in the middle for people for people to sleep a bit because before they continue their journey. Now, if you want to go deeper and go into the smaller details, I think that's where, as Shady was saying, where most of the world building shines the most. I talked a bit about this uh, on an article that they wrote for the Institute before. Uh, regarding uh, creating smaller campaigns instead of bigger ones, because uh, when you focus on a smaller scale, you can decide to have it all be part of a city, for example. And when you're creating a city, you need to constantly ask why everything is that way. I have found on the internet that there is a, um, a sort of system that you can use when creating your world that uh, some people call MERPs, but I find it easier to remember when you call it sperm. Um, with, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all those five letters mean a different thing. 
S from social, then uh, P for political, then E for economic, R for religion, and M for military. It, when you're creating a city, try to focus on each of these specific things and how do each of these uh, work in the city or town you're building? And why is it that way? Maybe it's a, a city that is very focused on uh, merchandising and trying to uh, market something that is located in the city. And why is that? And what is that thing that they want to promote? Which people are benefited if that is the case? Maybe it is the, the politicians or the merchants are the ones that have control all over the city. And the names for those people might be connected to all these things. Uh, you need to always go deeper and ask why something is that way. And then you will find the smaller details that are the best things that connect each of those things with another one. You mentioned a little bit of the, the geography of things that reminded me of something that as a player will annoy me is if the geography of a particular place doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like if you put a city nowhere near any source of water, how does that city exist? Yeah. yeah or maybe there, there's a mountain in the middle of nowhere. And why is it yeah. only one mountain? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, this is not saying you can't do these things. And it's not saying you can't say something, especially in a fantasy setting. It's there because of magic. Exactly. But you need to think of these things and understand how they work. You know, I'm not saying you need to go have a whole degree in geography or geology or in sociology and how cities form and all that, but you should have at least a little understanding of things that a city would need to survive. Yeah, I completely agree. Absolutely. It's important to do those things. In general, with the big things versus the small things, I think one of the things I'll say is that I will have broad strokes for that city is over there or that mountain range is over there or that forest is over there, but I'm only going to put the flavor in the details in the stuff I know my players are going to interact with right away. Yeah. In the city they're starting in and I'll detail the tavern and the NPCs and the social events or the festivals that are happening in that town so that they have something to kind of go off of in that place where we're starting. And if you're brand new at world building and you're unsure of geography and where do rivers go and all and, and all that, grab an atlas, a world atlas, mm -hmm. uh, go to your library. Hey, they still exist. Grab a world atlas and flip through pages and just look at maps of different parts of the world and see how the different pieces consciously look at it at how the different pieces fit and influence one another. Hey, there's mountains over here, which makes the river go that way and, and so on and so forth, right? Why are there always swamps along the coast, but never in the middle of the land, which there are some swamps in the middle of land, but you know, typically they're a coastal thing, but not always. Mm -hmm. And just kind of pick apart the maps and figure out why are things this way? One thing that saved me, I was building a world, Tailandar. This was, gosh, I was 19. And I had a peninsula that I needed details for that I hadn't detailed yet in the world map, continent map, technically. And I just was struggling. What do I put there? What goes there? What goes there? What goes there? And I'm flipping through a world atlas. And I must have been exhausted because I fell asleep on a map of Vietnam. <laughs> and I woke up and the page was stuck to my face. And I had drooled on Vietnam. Sorry, Vietnam. 
And I peeled the page off my face and I look at it kind of bleary eyed. And the little peninsula that I was trying to fill in was roughly the same shape and size as the peninsula Vietnam is on in, in those surrounding countries, but it was turned 90 degrees. And that's what my brain lock was because I had basically drawn that French Indochina peninsula, but it was 90 degrees off. My brain knew it was wrong, even though it wasn't really wrong. And when I looked at the map from a different perspective, just rotated it, boom, there was my answer. So I copied Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and all that, all their geography into my peninsula, and it worked great. That's a great idea. Yeah, it, re- it really is. Definitely look at actual maps. I agree with JT. Go to your library. Your library deserves your patronage. But you can also go on Google Maps and other things and look at just where cities are placed, where things are. There is absolutely no shame in taking a map and flipping it horizontally or vertically and just using it for your own. I did that for uh, one of my uh, Tales from the Loop style games where I basically took the town of Ithaca on one of the, the finger lakes and I flipped it horizontally and then I flipped it vertically so that the new oh. town was on the north end of the lake instead of the south end of the lake and didn't resemble anything. But there <laughs> I had a nice little roadmap to a town that I could start placing things in. Moving on, um, I do think that the, the idea of world building can be very overwhelming for GMs, new GMs, old GMs. And I want us to talk about how do you make sure that you don't get overwhelmed or spend 40 years creating a setting, <laughs> you know, before you get it to the table. Tomas, what have you done to like rein it in for yourself? I have a great answer for that. And that is that I just like to improvise. So <laughs> the fact that I was creating a world instead of using some one that already existed for my first campaign meant that I could come up with anything on the moment and it became real. I will take a note for that and I will plan out what that thing is for next week. And that's it. I knew that by using a world that I was creating, I could just say whatever I wanted and it became real. When you are using an already sitting setting, if you say that something is somewhere that isn't in the map, then your players might start to wonder if that really is like that because they can look at their own maps of the already existing system setting and see, hey, that's not there. What does that mean? You can do that as well. You can just create stuff on an already existing setting. But I actually feel much more comfortable creating stuff on something that I am creating on the spot or my own world, at least. I'll say that in running my Eberron campaigns, I will use the Eberron maps, but there's a lot of things that are on those maps that aren't actually detailed or aren't detailed very well. Like there's a half a paragraph on something. So I will take a thing that is actually on the map and make up what I want about it. Yeah. I did that with the ruins of Tazarian Rock. It was a location in the the nation of Drome in the Corvair continent in Eberron that it's on a map. I found like half a paragraph on it and I'm like, okay, that's where my players need to go. And so we're going to make up a whole bunch of stuff about it. <laughs> in general, this is a rule, good rule of thumb for all game prep. You want to have enough to be comfortable running the game, but give yourself enough space to create and improvise on the fly. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. JT, 
what do you do when it comes to this, the not overwhelming yourself with doing too much other than creating programs to do it for you? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's a, uh, I would say specialized skill, but it, it's definitely a good skill to have if you have the, the ability to sling, sling some code. For me, let's pretend I'm going to make a new setting, which who knows, I might again. I don't know. But I start local, and what I mean by that is where the game starts, where the PCs are involved. And when I'm starting with a brand new setting during session zero, tell everybody you are from XYZ village or town or city, typically not a city, that's too big of a scope. You're, you're from this town or village or the surrounding farmland or ranchland areas, but the only source of civilization you know is the village of Hamlet or whatever you call it. I build out the village cause, because you're going to have, if it's in a village, I don't know, 10 to 15 key locations and then a lot of homes. You don't need to map it. Just detail those 10 to 15 locations. And when I say detail, I mean, give them a name, give them a key NPC or two and give it a purpose. Like, why is it in the village? That doesn't take very long. That can be done in a couple of evenings, maybe one evening if you type quick enough. Then when the players start to direct themselves away from that bit of civilization, I build the road ahead of them while driving down it. <laughs> so there is some improv uh, elements to doing that. But when I kind of nudge them to the goblin caves to the northeast, and we're going to go there the next session, I build the road, so to speak, the goblin caves to the northeast. It's very key to get communication from your players. At the end of each session, I ask my players, what are your intentions for goals for the next session? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? That way, if they pick something that I haven't detailed yet, like the troll swamp to the southwest, hey, that gives me a week or a month or whatever time period to go sketch out the troll swamps to the southwest. That's kind of my approach for not getting overwhelmed. It's uh, just-in-time world building. A lot of time, the seven thing that JT did is just add more stuff and get ready for next session. Yeah. You can create an encounter on the spot if you want to, to fill up the, the needed time, or you can just decide to end the session there if you're not ready to continue in the same path that you are going. You said that there was um, maybe a, a cave in the mountains where this goblin were. You can come up with that for next session. That's it. I think some pl some GMs, when they come into starting to do world building, they think they have to have everything down, like they're going to be publishing their setting before the <laughs> players even play in it. And that's not the case. You don't need to do that. You don't need to build out more than your players are going to interact with. You might have an idea. You can jot a note down about things, but you don't need to have it fully fleshed out until your players are actually going to be there. Speaking of your players, how do you guys deal with player input and their collaboration to craft the setting for your game? JT, let's go with you first. All right. This is actually something fairly new table culture-wise for me. When I say new, I'm going to say in the last two to three years. That's new for me. And actually, I learned this by listening to Cinda and Phil on Pandas Talking Games, talking about how they get, you know, collaborate with their players, the leading questions, not the yes-no questions, but the, you know, not the, do you have an enemy? The player gets to say no, and you move on. Your question is, why are the Red Mask Bandits your enemy? And that ties the character into the world. 
this is new to me where I am collaborating with my players on the world building. You know, I, I'll build a scaffolding, maybe lay out like the wall is going to be here, but I will let them choose the materials and the paint job and the graffiti that goes on the wall. So I like giving them the little details to fill in because really it's those little details that are more important to the player characters. You know, if you start out in a small village, nobody cares what nation you're in. That small village could be plopped down in any one number of nations. And those are the big details. Now, the national culture could influence the village somewhat. So you got to keep that in mind. But again, the players aren't really going to delve deep into that. They, they want the smaller details. So I'll be like, Tavern Keeper Gunter has a daughter. Mm-hmm. How do you know her? Or why do you not get along with her? Or something along those lines. And then I let them build the daughter while I keep the Tavern Keeper for myself is one of the quote unquote big details. So that's my approach these days. Haven't always done that, but I'm evolving to incorporate that into my game and it, and it helps. It really does. Right. Um, what about you, Tomas? Yeah, I absolutely agree with JT over there because uh, the leading questions are something that are incredibly great to world build with your friends or players. I've learned this by playing uh, the game Kids on Brooms mm-hmm. that has a whole starting section in which you get to create the world with your players. And because that game is based on Harry Potter or sort of those styles of wizardry games, uh, you get to choose uh, how your school looks like or where it is located. If it even is a school, if there is some class that is more important in there and you are mostly doing world building in there by letting players, for example, in my game, my players decided that the most important class in that was familiar uh, battles. So it's pretty much like Pokemon, but with family. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the whole school had uh, a whole series of competitions that go on because of that, because my players decided that that was popular on the school. Another example that I have uh, here from the game that I'm starting this weekend is that I am creating a small town, but I decided to create secrets that were part of that town. And I came up with a bunch of of secrets that they are going to roll which one they know, and I'm going to tell them. Uh, For example, maybe the, the innkeeper knows that the fisherman killed someone. Why does that character know about that? So they get to world build the reasoning why their character knows that secret. And then they inform me and I get to place that whatever they come up with inside the world. And those are very small details that can mean a lot. What about you, Ang? What have you come up with? Actually, I have this interesting, I don't want to say it's a love-hate relationship with collaborative world building because there's no hate involved. I have just experienced frustration before when I try and do, like, some games actually encourage full-on collaborative world building before you start the game, like Tomas says with Kids on Brooms. Mm -hmm. And I have struggled with some of those when the players add an element that just doesn't excite me, doesn't interest me, or isn't really something I want to engage with. Sure. Yeah. Uh, For example, in a a Monster of the Week campaign I ran, one of the players created a kind of a wizard society that had turned evil or whatever. The way he was describing it, it sounded like he was no longer involved. So I asked the leading questions like, 
what was the final straw that made you leave? And he's like, who says I left? And I'm like, well, I thought you did, but I'm not here to run an evil wizard group. (laughs) So, you know, and I didn't handle it as well as I could have because I kind of just, okay, whatever, and just ignored that aspect of the campaign that he was giving me because whenever you do this type of thing with your players, these are things they are giving you that they are saying they want to see in the game. Yes. Yeah. Or at least that's generally what it should be. So I have tried to find a good balance between using what my players give me or show interest in and still being able to craft a world that I am interested in and engaged in running for them. It's things like uh, for the current Depths of Zendric campaign I've run in Eberron using 5th edition. Mm -hmm. When I started setting up this campaign, I had no plans to engage with the history of the Valinar elves, who basically originally, you know, they have this long history of where they came from the the subcontinent of Arenal to, you know, during the, the Hundred Years' War. And before that, their people came from Zendrik after the fall of the giant empire and all that. But one of my players, he made a half-elf who was half-Valinar, who was very obsessed with trying to gain the honor of his ancestors, which is a big thing in that culture. So taking what he gave me, all of a sudden, that is now an aspect of the campaign that is built into everything that is happening. Mm-hmm. I can set up the framework for the world, but the world isn't going to come alive until I get what my players are interested in and can start feeding things into the game that I know they're going to engage with. Absolutely, yeah. Backstories are a great piece of information that we can get into our, com- into our world to make it richer. Uh, mostly because when you're doing brainstorming and getting opinions from different people, the world gets much better. I think we've covered a lot. Any last thoughts on world building before we roll out of here? Tomas mentioned the, the Kids on Brooms world building. I have a couple of books that I backed on Kickstarter. You can go out and buy them directly now. It's called Arium, and it's a system and genre agnostic approach at collaborative world building so if you were like we have savage worlds we can do anything we want or we have gurps we can do anything we want so on and so forth what do we want to do and everybody goes i don't know you whip out the arium books and it guides you through very well through the process of determining everything you could think of about collaborative setting creation the company is adept icarus which I, I love the irony in the company name there. <laughs> but uh, I've got the link in the show notes. Uh, but go check out Arium by Adept Icarus. They've got three books out, Create, Discover, and Explore. And it's different phases of, you only need to create, but I highly recommend all three. And they're not that expensive. Go check them out and get them PDF and print. What I'm going to say is just take it one step at a time. Don't overwhelm yourself. You don't have to have a fully published setting ready to go when your campaign starts just take it slow and use the feedback of your players well i'm going to grab a bit of what you two said Uh, i know that there are some games out there that are all about world building with your friends for example the quiet year there's microscope as well Mm -hmm. and you can use those uh, to create your own small world and start from there 
And because you created it with your players, they are going to be more engaged in what they can do in the in it because they know what is in there. Yep. Another thing that you can do uh, as a last detail is just grab a city from some other setting and place it in your world. For example, I grabbed the city of Waterdeep before I even knew what the whole thing about Waterdeep was about. I just knew it that it was a city that had a beholder. <laughs> and I created my whole city that was near a port city. It's called Seaport for that reason. It had a beholder underneath. And I started placing more things because I just decided to get that thing from there. Because I got, got confused with Baldur's Gate that is very criminal-like, I made it Seaport that there is a lot of criminal activity in there. Just grab a ton of stuff from everywhere and place it all in the same place and you're going to get something very rich. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can be a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website at the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the Detail Pro Shop. If you need to get your world detailed just like you get your car detailed, you can come to us and fill in all those colorful little aspects your setting needs. If you're enjoying the Gnome Cash, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's another one to check out. Misdirected Mark plays. Phil, Chris, Bob, and Jerry play and discuss a campaign they've created and are playing. Instead of just talking about the theory of gaming and game mastering, now they're playing and you can hear what they do at the table. It's come full circle in their exploratory play series, MM Plays. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, gnomestew on Blue Sky, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, is there anything else you want to give a shout out today? I got two. A great friend of mine who I mentioned earlier who created Soleus and the Black Road and all that. He has his debut novel. Came out a couple of days ago as of this recording. Uh, you'll find it under Liam Gray, which is his pen name. The name of the book is Fetchwife, and it's a Norse-influenced urban fantasy set in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I had the honor and privilege of doing editing on the novel, and it is a fantastic book. Really loved it all the way through. My copy actually arrives tomorrow so that I can give it another read to see what he did post-suggestions, right? <laughs> and getting to scribble on it. I want him to sign it. <laughs> so that's my shout-out number one. And then a little self-serving shout-out. My second novel in my Sword and Sorcery series, the novel is entitled Hive Dreams, will be out on Amazon by the time you hear this podcast. Great. Uh, book two in that series will be out, and all the links to the books and such will be in the show notes. That's awesome. Tomas, do you have anything you want to give a shout out to? Something that I'm trying to get into right now is getting to stream stuff, mostly me doing world building, uh, creating encounters, and learning how to play Pathfinder 2. So if you want to come in and learn how to play with the things that I'm doing, create encounters, world build, and... I'm also planning to read some RPGs that I haven't read. Just come in and let's have some fun time. Uh, do you have? A, is it a Twitch that you're streaming on? I haven't created yet, but I'm <laughs> planning on <laughs> doing so. Yeah, Twitch. Very good. Nice plans. I like it. When you do get that that set up, let us know, and we can we can shout it out on the the Facebooks and the Blue Sky. Great. Yeah. For me, I'm just going to give a shout out to Kanka.io. It's K-A-N-K-A dot I-O. I think I've mentioned them before in this shout out section, but basically they're a website designed to help you with your world building. Um, I have used it for a couple of my campaigns and it provides a lot of what you would need kind of at a, a more indie venue than uh, the 
big, well-known one that everyone uses, but I like it quite a bit. So moving on. It is a Christmas miracle. No one goes into the stew pot this time. Yay! <laughs> but we are taking some time off for the holiday season, so no new episode in two weeks. We will be back in full swing with gaming-related goodness after the new year. So we hope you all have a safe and happy holiday season and that you get some good gaming in.